You're listening to Trending with Timory, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. National speaker Timory Millington has been a passionate advocate for life as long as she can remember, helping Gen X through Z answer the call to true feminism and authentic manhood. Timory holds a master's degree in biblical theology, and she covers this week's hottest stories from a Catholic worldview. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Wow, we've been following this story on trending for I think about a year and a half now. There is this activist in Canada who you may remember last year, he decided that he wanted a handful of women to give him a Brazilian but you know the bikini wax you know far too intimate and far too much hair being removed and i'm sorry just far too painful i don't know why he'd want to go through with this it's clearly just to him uh kind of testing the waters here well here's the bottom line the women refused he ended up going to the courts going to human rights tribunal and sued three of these women it was awesome the courts ended up defending the women that they shouldn't have to give a brazilian wax wax to someone of the opposite sex uh who they don't feel comfortable doing that with they have to handle important genitalia area and uh it's just too much so he actually ended up paying two thousand dollars to each of these women it was just a great victory at the end of last year and you know it really is a funny case you guys we should be able to laugh at this a little bit because he's intentionally going in and just causing disruption he's an activist he identifies as transgender it's jonathan is i believe is how you say his name Uh, i think he goes by jenna or something jessica jessica there we go and so now here's what's happening in the new year he is now targeting and trying to sue yet again now it's the salon it's a salon for women she point beauty studio because they're refusing to even wax his legs that's right yeah we'll see where that one goes to but yeah this is quite the character you know he's been caught i guess in doing uh, i guess one of the reasons he lost his case i mean it, it seemed to be shown that he um he only became transgender to get closer to young girls or at least there was some proof or evidence of that and he was even denied some kind of permit to have this topless LGBT party for ages 12 and plus where parents were not allowed. So there are many things about this man that, that, that were found to be very deviant. And I think even that first case, he was trying to ask for $500,000 in damages, which was considered that was divorce from reality and reason. So, yeah, we're dealing with quite a character here, and it probably won't get far this next time around. It's so interesting as we follow this story because what's happening is essentially we're seeing cases like this come up where we have a problem with people trying to force women in particular to really go against their comfort level with regard to sexuality. I mean, this would force a woman to still, even in the case of waxing the legs, to touch private areas that are uncomfortable. It would be in a private room. I mean, if anything, this is really an assault on women in their own dignity. And, you know, some women are willing to go there. And that's what's interesting. The salon was more than willing to point him in a direction of a salon that would be happy to perform these services. But they were very clear. Our salon is for women's services only. And here's the bottom line in this story. We're talking about a man who has been clearly labeled 
as essentially a pedophile targeting not just high schoolers, but even younger than that and trying to access these young kids. I mean, we may be laughing at how ridiculous the story is because it is. We should be able to laugh at that. But you guys, when we give men access to the restrooms of women, when we say, okay, it's okay, you can go into whatever changing room you want in certain instances, it just goes too far and it's unsafe. That's right. And it just violates the dignity of a woman, her right to privacy, her right to her own dignity, her right to, in some way you could say literally, her right to her own body in the sense that she does have that right to privacy and to protect it. So, yeah, he's really acting in bad, bad intention here. In fact, um, really, in fact, what these these cases come down to is his own racial animus to to punish the salon, the workers for their, their cultural and their religious views. So I want to dive into another topic today because all this surrounds sexuality in many ways, a misplaced understanding of sexuality, of discrimination, because some people are going to look at this story that we we're just talking about and say, you know, you should be nice. You should let him, you know, get the services he needs. OK, fine. But then have him go somewhere where someone's comfortable performing those services. So let's talk about another topic where we see confused sexuality. And you're listening to Trending with Tim Ray. My guest today is Dr. Philip Chavez of the Men's Academy. You can learn more about him and his work at themensacademy.org, where they have excellent resources, especially for men, young men in particular as well, where they really talk about what is it to be a man? What are some of the pillars of masculinity? And how can we bring this back to the forefront in our culture? That's right, which um, when, that, when that is brought back, I think Hopefully that will be some sort of remedy to what we just talked about and other things. But yes, yeah. So I encourage anyone who wants to learn more about aspects of manliness, especially how they relate to the faith and a man's validation, his own uh, mission, identity, and journey. Yeah, go to mensacademy.org. So I want to talk today about chastity in relation to these various topics. We'll be talking a little bit later on about how even Pope Benedict, Pope Emeritus Benedict, has weighed in on the conversation regarding celibacy and married priests. We'll be coming up on that in a bit. He actually co-authored a book that we'll be talking about. And we'll also be talking about the United Methodist Church and how they've actually split because there's disagreement over whether or not the clergy should be allowed to enter into gay, quote unquote, air quotes, marriages. So we'll be coming up just in a little bit on that. But first, to kind of contextualize this, let's talk about chastity, because I think we have to start with that as a basis. What is chastity? You know, it's faithfulness to your vocation. You know, a married person is chaste or should be chaste, right? A a priest is chaste, a religious sister, a single person. We all have a state in life where we are living chastity to the optimal view. And so that is orienting us toward whatever our current vocation is in truth. So if you're married, you're only exchanging sexual relations with your spouse. You're not engaging in extramarital affairs. You're not looking at pornography. Even emotionally, you're not allowing yourself to enter kind of too much into an interest of someone of the opposite sex. Same thing could be said in a sense with the priesthood. You know, we're recognizing that our priests and religious do have sexual desires, but they have chosen a state of life where they're called to be integrated in their sexuality, acknowledging the desire, but living in a state of life that does not engage in the creation of new life and or doing anything to violate that sexual act. Yeah, so for them, the, you know, the, the chase path for them in the right use of the sexual faculties and the sexual drive 
is to abstain. And so that, that's what's proper in their state. And so even in marriage is not a license to act unchastely. That is to the extent that the sex exchange is, is not according to right order. So there is, there's a chastity to be heeded to also in marriage with, with proper virtue and proper prudence and proper um, continence involved. Yeah, continence, commitment, fidelity to that relationship. It's amazing sometimes when we use Catholic terminology, how often people don't so know yeah. what certain Catholic terms are. It's a reminder sometimes when we're talking about the Catholic Church's mm. teaching on sexuality, we need to speak to where the culture is at, that's right. what they're discussing. And that's part of the reason why here on Trending, we try to be a little more blunt with the conversation because that's where people are and that's what they understand. That's Not right. that yeah. we're kind of stooping down and making it very base, but sometimes, you know, even in the case of same-sex interaction, you guys, the body parts don't work that way. Just like a seatbelt, just like, you know, giving gas into your car. If you don't do it the right way, the car's not going to function properly or the seatbelt won't protect you. Yeah, you're making a good point here, just to go back a little bit, Timory, that, um, yeah, we need to make the faith very intelligible to people. And I know I find myself running into this, too, where I might talk with terms and in a way that might be above uh, someone's uh, level of understanding. And so, in fact, in this way, I think that the Catholic Church suffers. If we do use terms that people aren't able to understand, they, they might understand the church is something too lofty or too unreal or unrealistic to follow. So yeah, so the importance of using words and terms and examples, which others can understand is vital. So here's what's interesting. The United Methodist Church has officially split over, quote unquote, gay marriage clergy. And I find it fascinating because on one side, people are choosing to stick with a version of the Methodist Church that is faithful to scripture and the church's teaching on homosexuality. So I want to kind of talk about this for a second because it's actually really important if our clergy are not faithful to what the church teaches then what is true? What's the purpose of the church even? Is it to make you feel good? Is it just to talk about the fact that God exists, but not to say who he is or what he wants? I mean, why would we enter into any sort of relationship in our life if we said, I don't want to know anything about you or even try to please you in some ways or seek your good? That's essentially what the Methodist church is doing by saying we're going to allow gay clergy That's saying we're not going to follow what our own kind of guidelines are supposed to stand by. That's why with something so serious, too, you can't expect that somebody would be so deviant in some basic teaching of sexuality that they would also uh, faithfully teach all the other teachings of that faith. Even the Methodist faith, you'd find them deviant in that level as well. One thing I want to dive into a little bit is we need to see that scripture, sacred scripture is sound in terms of sexuality. I mean, let me just give a brief overview here, because sometimes people say, you know, you're being hard, you're going too far. What does the church talk about? We can look to Genesis from the very beginning. We know Genesis chapter one, God created man, male and female. But you dive right into Genesis chapter two, verse 24. Not only did he create them male and female, he created them to cleave to one another, to be fruitful and multiply, not male and male. It's not possible. Not female and female, male and female. Then we see that even Jesus Christ in the New Testament, in, for example, Mark chapter 10, when he's talking about marriage, he reemphasizes marriage between one man and one woman, just as it was from the beginning. And we see if we follow throughout scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, not only does it emphasize marriages between a man and a woman for the purpose of creating new human life in that bond between the spouses, 
but it's ultimately oriented toward the imitation of Christ. And we see in Romans chapter one, for example, St. Paul is talking about various ways that we as a humanity have turned our backs on God through things like gossip, through lying, through stealing, through sexual promiscuity. But he even talks in Romans chapter one about how men exchange natural relations Mm -hmm. with women for unnatural relations with men. And the women did the same thing. And he talks about how this is the turning of our backs on God. So you guys, when you think that the church is harsh in its teaching, no, it's standing true to what's oriented in our bodies. And it's calling us to a greater calling of what God has ordained from the beginning of time. That's right. And this way, in following God's plan, God's order, which is really woven into our DNA and just in our entire being, that um, we follow God's plan and God's order, that will really lead to true happiness. And so in this way, as marriage, too, in, in leading to God's order, as you were trying to allude to, is the permanence resulting therein, that once the marriage vows are made, that between man and woman, there's a permanence that's made, which brings a stability and a real rock toward toward all things which involve marriage and family. You know, and I even look at more of what scripture has to say. You can look at Leviticus, for example, Leviticus 18, and it talks about how men should not live with men as they would with women. And vice versa, like you're meant to live with someone of the opposite sex in a particular way. And you shouldn't try to create a make-believe reality of living with someone of the same sex as if it were a marriage. And, you know, we see examples of this that continue to go on in Leviticus, like chapter 20. Actually, from the beginning, the church has talked about homosexuality. It's not new in 2020, yet people will try to say, well, you know, it is 2020 now. You know, Uh we have dealt with this. No, this has been an issue for years. And in fact, in Leviticus 20, it puts same-sex relationships and engagement in the same context talking about things such as bestiality and pedophilia. That's right. And so in virtue of which, yeah, any any sexual kind of deviation really, as Catholic Church has taught, at least in terms of where grave matters or where certain situations where sexuality is violated, grave matter is always involved. And so, so yeah, for all these deviations we're talking about, really, we, we embark upon something deeply offensive to God, which, as we call it, is, is grave matter and does lead us to sin mortally and really lose, even through sexuality, our very souls. Now, if you know anyone who's in the Methodist church, maybe they're struggling over this, they're grappling with it, invite them into a church with over 2,000 years of tradition that has stood on the tradition of the Jews as well, where it emphasizes scriptural reality, the tradition of reality oriented in the natural law written into the body. And this is a question to ask, why should we really have clergy who act any differently than the higher calling that sacred scripture calls us to. That's right. And all the more so they should, they're called to, I guess, a higher level of their obedience to scripture and they're following a scripture. So actually they're there to actually set the example. You're listening to Trending with Timory. That is Dr. Philip Chavez of the Men's Academy. On a similar but a different note, there has been debate I really, in light of the sex abuse scandal, that a lot of people are saying, well, we should have married priests. You know, I have to tell you, I teach Pilates, and so I have the opportunity. I think God sends a lot of, as they call themselves, recovering Catholics my way, Mm. or, you know, lapsed Catholics and so forth. People who have had some sort of Catholic upbringing and often are not practicing. And often I get the fun questions having to do with both LGBTQ issue from them, why can't the church just kind of be with the times or sex abuse. And 
I am always amazed by how many people think that just offering the opportunity for priests to get married would solve the problem of the sex abuse crisis. Right. And I have to just start with this because we're going to get a little bit into what Pope Emeritus Benedict actually had to say on this. My thought always starts with this. If someone can't be chased outside of marriage, what makes us think that they're going to be chased inside of marriage? That's right. Chastity is a virtue. It's a gift. It's a practice. It's a habit. All of this implements in both with our effort and the divine intervention of God through the grace of Christ working within us. Yet again, why would we say, yeah, these same people who have abused children and so forth should then just get married to solve the problem. That's like saying, you know what? You should marry that guy who has a pornography addiction. I think he's going to get a lot better when you just get married. And, That's you know, right. It yeah. changes to you. You know what I mean? The That's pressures. Right. And so in virtue of which those people make those arguments, see sexuality as something which just relieves sexual tension. Yes. There's nothing much deeper than that. Nothing much as you've spoke earlier about the right relationships between spouses, man and wife, or any kind of uh, discussion of fidelity. Yeah. So in this case, yeah, these people are just thinking that, well, if they're able to just express themselves sexually, then that's going to resolve the whole problem. You know, I want to come to what Pope Benedict said. So you guys may not have heard yet. The book has not been released, but Pope Emeritus Benedict is coming out with a book that he co-authored with Cardinal Seurat. And together, they're specifically talking about the issue of the crisis for our priests today, which is very serious. And essentially, it's called From the Depths of Our Hearts. And it's really a case for priestly celibacy and addressing how our priests are struggling spiritually today. That's right. And I, I hear it's also in some way addressed to the faithful as well and to give them uh, a more intelligent view of the um, crisis with, that's been happening in the Catholic Church. And how I see, so little bits of this have been released uh, thus far. The book will be coming out just over the next few weeks. Uh, there's been controversy. I'm not going to get into it. People say, well, did Pope Benedict really co-author it? He did co-author it, but some versions of it, I believe not in the United States, are writing it as he also wrote along with it, but they removed, let's say, his signature from it. But the United States version said the signature's there, and it's listed as Pope Emeritus Benedict having co-authored the book. I may have just misspoke and said Pope Francis if I did. Uh, I'm speaking of Pope Emeritus Benedict. So here's essentially what they're getting at. We're at a point in history where our priests are tempted to give up everything. And I have to tell you, if you're not close to any priests or if you've not really gotten the pulse for what they're going through right now, I know some people may not want to hear this, but our priests are really struggling. I think that's right. They are really struggling. You know, here's what's happening with all this scandal. Here's what's happening, unfortunately, with some of the inconsistencies or ambiguity of teaching right now. Well, what's the point? If there's ambiguity surrounding things, if there's no truth to the importance of celibacy and sexuality, well, why be a priest? If he's not held to that standard, why should I hold myself to a standard in a daily battle of holiness that I'm fighting for? And I think that it'll be really interesting to see where Cardinal Seurat and Pope Emeritus Benedict go in their great wisdom for our church today surrounding the important issue of sexuality and fidelity to Christ. Yeah, and even for those priests who are not struggling so much, in fact, I just had a meeting with one one Saturday who seems to be in a good place. Nonetheless, they're still in great need of our prayers mm-hmm. because the temptations are so great. And I think a lot of these a lot of these priests, you know, there's they have to encounter many things along ministry, which can be very damaging to them. But yes, the priesthood of itself generally 
has been in great measure discredited because of a lot of the sexual abuse. And of course, we've seen even ex- other other abuses as well, maybe not as grave, but certainly financial misuse mm-hmm. of, of, of DOS and funds, of parish funds and whatnot. And other things about the way the priests are leading their lives and, and spending, it's, it's somewhat disheartened many of the faithful. I want to paraphrase one of the quotes we do have so far from Pope Emeritus Benedict in the new forthcoming book, From the Depths of Our Hearts. He, and again, I'm paraphrasing here, he talks about how essentially the conjugal state concerning man and woman and their totality in marriage requires the total gift of the man. And so he sees it as problematic and he says it does not seem possible to realize chastity when there are two vocations because also so does the priesthood require the total gift of self and the priesthood. So he's saying, how can you be totally faithful to two totally different vocations? That's right. And one aspect of looking at that, it's, it's important to understand that the new covenant priesthood separates itself from all other priesthoods. In the very fact that the priesthood is, doesn't just offer sacrifice, he is the sacrifice. So in, in some way, I mean, as much as we want to emphasize the sacraments and what a priest does in terms of dispensing those sacraments, in some way there's a very primal element of his being where he makes a total sacrifice of himself. He is the victim. He just doesn't offer sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. And so to be consistent with that victimcy, which he offers himself, it's otherwise hard or unintelligible to see how he can really be completely free in offering himself in the priestly state and the married state at the same time. And who, who is your bride? I That's feel right. like there would mm, constantly question. the question, yeah. who point. is your bride? You know, your parishioners, your children, sure. who are your children? You know, and this is one of the things that they're talking about in this book, you know, You can't be fully here and fully there. You can't be totally committed to one thing and you would have to put something on the sideline. And so I think it was Pope Benedict in some of the conversation uh, basically looking about how it would be so difficult to see a priesthood essentially where it's kind of just done on the side. That's right. You can't just be a priest on the side, just like you can't just be a father on the side. That's right. It's totally who you are. That's right. I know uh, three married priests personally, and of course that was through uh, special privileges. And I see that that it is very difficult for all of them, and these are all very good men, by the way, but it is very difficult for all of them to give themselves, um, in terms of their full time and their full heart to their ministry. You could see that they have to hold back for their sake of the family and only limit themselves to so many things they can engage in because the family demands are huge. But again, even on just even on the emotional level, a priest who needs to give us such a heart and so much uh, of his emotion, so much of his will to his his flock, as you say, his bride, um, it's very, very hard to give that fully to a family at home. One of the things I think we need to talk about as well is how if we're talking about a priesthood where there's the option of marriage and the priesthood, it really poses a threat of careerism that we start to look at the priesthood as a career job. Yeah. And that's one of, I think the challenges that we see already in the priesthood right now that we have this idea of, you know, aiming for the top careerism. It's about me rather than about the service I give, which is why in fact, you know, the priesthood is a sacrament. It's not a career. It's a vocation. The way the devotion to a family and a spouse is a vocation. That's right. In virtue of that, it's very, very hard to compare the priesthood with anything else. And so, again, it's the priesthood really is that calling to a, a deep conformity with Christ. It's not simply any kind of vocation. It's a vocation by which, I mean, we're all called to that, but a priest is called to that lifestyle of Christ, that image of Christ in a, in a deeper, more profound and more literal way. 
and you know, it's interesting. I'm not going to remember the name of the book. I'll find the book and put it in the notes to the show. You can pull up the show notes at radiotrending.com or wherever you listen to a podcast. Because there, I know there are great pieces by Mary to priests where they actually make the case for the priesthood not being a good idea for married individuals. And what's interesting is that when they do different polls, and again, I'll throw all the links into the show notes, the women, the wives of the married priests do not advocate for a married priesthood. They talk to how difficult it is for the priesthood in that split vocation, essentially. Yeah, I've heard of the same thing. But yeah, again, it's very, very difficult if a priest is to give himself as a total sacrifice to his flock. It's, uh, it's almost an unintelligible thing that he can give himself completely and totally to a wife and a family. In fact, in virtue of which, well, as we see in the non-Catholic world, even those who are married do find themselves oftentimes in conflict in marriage and divorce is actually at a fairly high rate. We'll be right back on Trending with Tim Ray. Thanks for being with us. If you maybe aren't able to listen to the full episode, you can go to radiotrending.com and you can pull up the podcast on relevantradio.com. Timory will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. great to be with all of you. I want to talk a little bit about how sometimes the Catholic Church, or should I say Catholic individuals, are targeted. Uh, You know, I was talking to my husband the other day about this. We saw an example of a Catholic pro-life woman who had been targeted for her beliefs and really targeted because she was Catholic and holding to beliefs about being pro-life. And he said, why is it that the Catholic Church has always been persecuted. I mean, from the beginning, from the inception of Catholicism. And if we look to sacred scripture, it's written right into the New Testament letters. Sure. And, you know, Jesus Christ himself emphasizes that we will be persecuted. I mean, just read, you know, we forget that if we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we don't just have the Beatitudes in the Beatitudes. It is made clear that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And he calls us to rejoice in that. So with me is Dr. Philip Chavez to talk about Catholic persecution. We'll talk a little bit about Nick Sandman as well. Yeah, and it does come to be a part of a Christian journey in the Christian life. You know, we're called to imitate Christ. We're called to walk in his journey. And his was one of not just sacrifice, but it was one of great persecution. And so, uh, yeah, our Lord told us and to be very clear as they persecuted me, so they will persecute you. So one example of this that we saw, which I am so happy that it has turned out how it has. So back in 2019 at the March for Life, there was a minor teenager by the name of Nick Salmon who was out after the walk with a group of people. The long and short of it, and I'll post links so that you guys can see it if you're not up to date kind of on the story, was essentially he's wearing a MAGA hat. He's Catholic. He's with a Catholic school. And... Basically, there's a little bit of a confrontation that breaks out. One person gets in the middle of it and 
there's all this audio and video and basically a bunch of major television networks choose to pull a clip of the audio out. And again, I'm not going to get into all the details because here's the gist of it. They basically really put this minor on national television, wrote all of these articles about him, defaming him, I mean, humiliating him, and putting him as the face of basically being this anti Trump, anti-woman, you know, this prejudiced individual. I and mean, we could go on and on. And he was targeted and he was just a kid. And so this was one of those moments where the Catholic pro-life community said, nope, not this one. You're targeting a minor. We're not going to go there. And so here's what's happened. It's been kind of a year of court battles. And just over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that there's been a major settlement because essentially the parents of this young gentleman, Nick Salmon, ended up suing for defamation, multiple of the various networks. And actually, we heard that CNN has settled what was a $275 million lawsuit outside of court. We don't know how much they settled right. for, but they settled outside of court with the family. Yeah, and that's that's a good thing, and that is a victory. The grave injustice was done against him. You know, Timory, when I first saw that video, the, the portion of it that was widely played, you know, here you saw this teen with this smug grin on his face, you know, almost belittling, you know, the, the Native American man in front of him beating his drum. And I, I, I kind of thought, yeah, this man, this young kid is being a little intimidating. He's being a, you know, a smart kid here. But yeah, when you look at the full story, no. And, you know, that smug look only came from a, a man who was just trying to defend himself in the way he only knew how, you know. And so it was him who was, was attacked and his dignity was greatly uh, violated there. And, you know, I actually am really proud of him. Look at the silence. Yeah, he stood there. He stood fast. Respectfully. That's right. Holding his ground. That's right. Not being confrontational. And some people might say, well, you know, they were so close together. You know, he was making the smug face. No, I think that this is an example for all of us of how sometimes there are periods where we need to speak up. And sometimes there are moments where we are called to stand there silent in Christ as if we're witnessing Christ on the cross. Because so what if it was about the MAGA hat? So what if it was about the pro-life issue? The bottom line, it was because he was standing true to the reality of the impact of the unborn That's right. in the womb. And he was standing for truth. And so may we be encouraged as well to stand for truth. That's right. And he was just being steadfast as as he knew how. You know, I think his lawyer at one point said, well, he was really the only adult in the room. So <laughs> he was the only one acting uh, maturely and, and, and with self-control. And, you know, I've done a lot of pro-life activism. I was raised doing pro-life activism. And there are times where things get heated. Sure. And you're tempted to lash out. Oh, you're sure. tempted to, you know, holler at someone. You're tempted to say, get off of me, get yeah, away. Yeah, or push you're, away, literally physically yeah. push away, yeah. And everything would have been just, I mean, you can always step back where you do need to defend yourself. Sure. But there is something to the example of Christ on the cross, the example of Christ in his silence and times, and the example of the calm questions and the walking away that Christ did, that we too are called to recognize there will always be persecution when you 
hold true to the faith of the Catholic Church. That's right. And to trust that when you do hold true, that your response, that Christ, the Spirit will give you that proper response, because there's sometimes you need to speak up and there's sometimes you need to keep silent. I forget who writes about this. Well, maybe it's Alphonsus Liguori. He says it's important that you trust in God's Spirit, that, that you, if you really are defending the faith with goodwill and good intention, that you will respond in the proper way. You know, when we talk about responding in the proper way, this is where I think we have the incredible opportunity to invoke the Holy Spirit, because I can't tell you guys, I don't have all the answers. I don't have, you know, all of the knowledge in the world to answer these questions. But what I do have is the Holy Spirit, and I have the ability to put my effort in into really rely on God to be there, whether it's the moment when you are in front of the abortion clinic sidewalk counseling. Maybe it's when you have a family member asking you a really difficult question. You're trying to figure out, okay, how many, you know, people are, am I going to upset here? Or better yet, what is the right seed to plant for this person and those who are witnessing the conversation? That requires being open to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and his guidance. Because if we try to do it alone, we're going to mess it up. We're going to say something stupid. We're going to anger someone. And anger is not a bad thing, but let's make sure we do it right. That's right. And we always want to look like Christ. We always want to look steadfast. You know, I'm thinking too, you know, we, at, at the, the clinic I protest from every week in Temecula, I find that I'm very, very blessed that I'm with a very devout crowd and, and we put prayer as number one. But it is important to, to, to when, you, when, when you're out there that remember you're, you're representing Christ there. And so when you know that and, and understanding that in, in a spirit of prayer, it is possible to maintain your composure and you do find the strength for that when it's otherwise, you know, kind of a disheartening kind of circumstances. And it never really feels good to be there in front of that clinic because there is something very ugly about the nature of what's happening. But nonetheless, that there is a strength that comes from that. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray. That is Dr. Philip Chavez of the Men's Academy One of the lessons I think we can take away from this is we're called to be courageous, but what is maybe God specifically calling me to speak up about and be courageous about? Because we can't all do everything. We can live our life according to the Catholic Church, but maybe there's something specifically that is on your heart, that there's a passion that's been placed there. Maybe a curiosity for the church's teaching. How are you answering that calling. That's right. And maybe sometimes too, Timory, it's just a matter of what's that first step for most people. You know, I remember speaking to a Knights of Columbus group just recently and just kind of challenged them, okay, how many of you guys need to step up your prayer life for the new year? Everyone raised their hands. And so I just challenged them, okay, what's that next step? What's that one thing that you can be doing to take initiative to go in the direction you think you need to head? And maybe it's even something such as when we're talking about your prayer life, a particular saint that's kind of beckoning you. I notice saints usually tend to call you out and there's maybe one saint you have this curiosity about who just keeps popping up. Maybe someone keeps giving you things related to this saint. You know, saints are our spiritual friends and our guides. And by learning uh, not just about them, but by actually reading the works that they have written We learn so much about how they thought and how they lived and more importantly, how they loved Christ in their life. That's right. And to trust their intercessory power. So when I'm in front of the abortion clinic, too, usually I I trust myself to Maria Goretti and just kind of surrender. Okay. Say, Maria, I, I, I trust that you will lead me in the right direction here. Help me with the inspirations to move in the image of, of Christ. That's a beautiful example that we are called to live. And, you know, things like calling on our guardian angels, calling on our guardian angels when there's a difficult conversation, a job interview, whatever it might be, you know, 
call on that intercession. We have the heavenly kingdom, the mystical body of Christ. Do we really view ourselves as part of that mystical body or are we trying to do everything on our own? That's right. And um, and it is it is necessary to know that you're part of a communion of saints, a part of a community. Then that's one thing I find strength and I want to encourage others too is is to pray in front of these abortuaries and whatnot because um I think you'll you'll find yourself growing and developing in the Christian journey, but you find yourself doing so also in community with those who grow with you. Yes. Well, some of my closest friends are people who I have grown up with and partnered on various pro life projects because that's right. Here's what's so fundamental to kind of the theology of friendship, we are called to see the good in the other person and help to seek after the good, but we're also called to have a common mission. And the greatest mission we can have is a service of Christ and his church. And so maybe you're someone who's struggling with friendships. Maybe you're someone who's afraid to be involved in pro-life work. Do it as a group. Learn from these other people who are, let me tell you, incredible human beings who are truly willing to lay down their life for Christ in the church. That's right. And just to encourage people, everybody goes for the first time, doesn't know what they're doing, right? Right. And so really it's those who are around you that will lead you into prayer. And I remember the old days back in the East Coast, I actually used to approach girls. I don't do that so much here now because of, of a lot of legal things with trespassing and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, I just learn from others and I pray with inspiration. And so, yeah, there's a way I engage as best I know how. But again, you know, we all started, you know, just, just showing up and seeing what's happening. And maybe you really want to go pray in front of the abortion clinic or get involved and whatever that might be that you are being called to, ask someone to go with you. Maybe even ask someone who's experienced to help dissipate some of that fear. You're going to be face to face with the evil in this world, but you're going to be steadfast with the support of the church and the heavenly body of angels and saints. Thanks for listening to Trending with Tim Ray. We'll be right back in just a second. If you want to learn more about Dr. Philip Chavez and his work, you can head over to themensacademy.org. That's themensacademy.org. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. You know, we're living in a time where there is so much hostility to the Christian way of life. We've been talking, you know, this week about the idea of forced sex ed programs for young people. I mean, even kindergartners. We've also been talking about this idea that, you know, celibacy and uh, sex within marriage or even the idea of having, you know, a partner of the same sex is optional, let's say, for the Methodist church and their presbyters. Yeah, at the same time, there's another area where we're being attacked, and that has to do with health care. Health care is a big deal here in the United States, and we're going to discuss the new decade trends in American health care with Bradley Hahn, co-founder and CEO of Solidarity HealthShare. Thanks for being with us, Bradley. Yes, thank you, Timory. You know, as we're looking at all of this, Solidarity HealthShare is incredible because they're a Christian nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that actually offers an ethical and affordable alternative to traditional health insurance based on Catholic church teachings. So just like we're talking about STDs and sexuality in the faith, we actually have to talk about our faith with regard to healthcare. So we're actually seeing coming up this new year as we're entering a new decade, major, I think, conversation took place from two 
2010 on over health care and really uh, moral responsibilities for Catholics. Now that debate is continuing. What can we expect to see over the next couple of years, Bradley? Well, I think the, the primary concern that we're going to see in health care and the debate that's going to be happening is who's going to be paying for the health care and access to health care in this country. You know, and that's what the Affordable Care Act was allegedly supposed to do is grant greater access, you know, but with that came some strings. And just like, you know, on your, your previous segments, you're talking about how the culture is trying to influence us Christians to think the way the society and the culture does. It's the same way with health care. So the government's constantly telling us that, you know, as a Christian, it's okay to violate your conscience, you know, to pay for things we find morally objectionable, like contraception, sterilization, and abortion, and gender reassignment surgeries and the like. So that's kind of what we get bombarded with on a, on a daily basis when it comes to health care. You may not even realize it or not. But then, so what, that's what, we, what Solidarity Health Shared was a response to. Is so we're trying to find an ethical and an affordable way for faithful Christians to pay for their health care. So I see in the next decade that conversation is going to be even is even more heightened at the individual level. But we're also seeing a trend now is the employer mandate, where if you have over 50 employees, you have to offer these insurance products that contain these immoral issues. And then we're also seeing another debate that's really coming up and resurfacing a lot the last couple of years is the deliverer of health care, the providers of health care where these faithful Catholic doctors and nurses are being forced to violate their conscience and participate in these immoral activities like prescribing contraception or assisting in abortion. And so what kind of conscience rights and protections do they have in our current health care system? So around the conscience piece, it's a pretty big deal when the culture tries to go through the health insurance to try to influence and basically coerce um, Christians to violate their conscience. Wow, it is such a challenging time for people. I mean, even just deciding what sort of career you want to enter into. I know for so many friends of mine, they want to enter into nursing, you know, getting involved, maybe becoming a nurse practitioner, a doctor, but even just choosing the types of medical schools you work with, or even for many people entering into interviews and maybe they bring up that they won't prescribe or be involved with prescribing birth control. In a lot of places, at least here in San Diego and California, they almost have a door immediately shut on them. And this is why it's so great, because you guys are actually involved in discussions right now with the Trump administration on new policies surrounding health care and transparency rules, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of the second issue, the big debate we're going to be seeing the next couple of years, not only the conscience issue, but the transparency issue. Um, so right now, a lot of people agree that our health care system is broken. You know, we have the best health care system in the world as far as the care comes. But how it's paid for, that's what's really flawed and broken right now. And so we've had continuous conversations with the Trump administration and Health and Human Services on transparency because the consumer of health care, the providers of health care, and the insurance companies of health care, they really don't know what health care costs. And so that's when we come into the marketplace and our 10,000 families are out there trying to get health care. We're asking for fair and just pricing and transparency when it comes to health care. And that's the Trump administration is doing a, a magnificent job. They're trying to implement new rules and regulations to try to make have the, the lower middle class in particular and the middle class in general to have affordable access to health care. And transparency is a good start. So if we know exactly how much health care costs, then we can shop and, and be more transparent. I'll, I'll give you a, a classic example. 
is uh, when my son had ankle surgery, we were interviewing a couple surgeons, and one surgeon was very open to a fair and just pricing, and he was willing to give our family and solidarity members fair and just pricing. But another member was going to char- another doctor was going to charge us three times more than what the going market was in the, in the Phoenix area. So it made our decision pretty easy is we wanted to go with the best doctor that's going to protect our conscience rights, that's going to do the best job for my family, but that's also going to be understand that we also want a fair and reasonable price when it comes to health care. That is excellent. I have on the phone with me right now Bradley Hahn. He's a co-founder and CEO of Solidarity HealthShare. And if you're not familiar, they're actually an alternative to traditional health insurance. They're Catholic. They have... Their whole focus on healthcare is centered around the Catholic Church's teaching your health and ethical and affordable alternative is available here with solidarity. So right now, Brad, we're seeing that we're talking a lot about transparency and pricing, but the reality is, is that a lot of people have no idea what's going to be coming at them in terms of medical bills. So you guys are actually working and looking at the new trends in this upcoming decade of helping to protect patients from surprising medical bills. Yeah, that's uh, that's the big issue, uh, too, in Congress. You're seeing this idea about surprise medical building. So what surprise billing is is when you go to the hospital and you think you're paying for X, and then all of a sudden, surprise, you get a bill for Y. That's mm-hmm. usually uh, very expensive. Uh, again, I'm using another story with my son's ankle. Um, after the surgery, we had to go to the emergency room because he had some complications. And they tried to bill us $4,000 for a 45-minute emergency room visit. Wow. And so we've been constantly battling with them saying, okay, we'll pay this, but give us an itemized bill so we know exactly what we pay for. Did we pay $100 for a box of Kleenexes, which is usually coded as a mucus collection device? Did we pay $2,000 for this doctor to come and say hi and goodbye? And so they basically sent us an itemized bill that said, emergency room consultation, $4,000. You know, wow. and So we're like, no, 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 this isn't going to do it. We want to know exactly what things cost. And so that's what our members do, and we help this on behalf of our members as we look at a bill. The first thing we do with that bill, we look for errors. And usually we can find about 7 to 12% deduction, reduction in that bill just based on medical billing errors. Mm-hmm. Then after that, we try to get what fair and reasonable pricing is for that local area based on what Medicare would pay, what cash would pay, what, what the hospital would accept for, from insurance carriers and such like that. And then we can determine what a fair and reasonable price is. We would like more data, more information on what, what uh, health care costs in this country so we can be better informed consumers. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm just thinking of a recent story, Bradley. Again, I'm talking with Bradley from Solidarity HealthShare. I had a family member this past summer and they needed a heart holter and the heart holder, they could not get any idea of what the heart holder actually costs. They asked the hospital, the nurse, the doctor, the insurance company. They even asked the company that administered the holter. No one would give a response. They finally said, you know what? Things are getting better. I'm just not going to use this heart holder because no one will actually give me any sort of idea of what this costs. And so what Solidarity is doing is you guys are being advocates, again, for that transparency, but also from a Catholic perspective, to be responsibly good, uh, essentially good stewards of what we have and how we're spending our health care dollars in a time when we're spending more money than ever on health insurance. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And what we've been seeing at Solidarity when members join Solidarity when they abandoned traditional insurance is exactly that. So some of these families, it's very common for a family of four, a family of six to have a deductible of five to ten to fifteen thousand dollars. 
And most middle-class families, what I'm covering up now is that they don't have even have that in their savings account right now to pay those medical expenses. And so we got uh, much of the middle class now are foregoing and pro- postponing routine medical care because they simply can't afford to pay it because of these high deductibles that we're seeing in insurance. Now, and you know, you know that too, Tim, when you start delaying medical care, that's only when it's going to get worse for your, for your body. Now, could you give a comparison with Solidarity? You guys don't have a deductible, but you call it an unshared amount that is similar to a deductible. What would those numbers be in comparison? Yeah, like my family of four, we, uh, we, our monthly contribution is $549 per month. And our first um, $2,500 annual out-of-pocket cost, that's what we're responsible for financially. And then once the bill, medical bills get above the $2,500 as a family, that's when they're submitted for sharing to Solidarity, and, and, and then it's shared among our members of Solidarity. And that $2,500 is not per visit. It's for the whole year for the family. Correct. It's for the whole year. So that's what you're paying past your monthly payment. Exactly. Yeah. The monthly contributions of 549 and then we're responsible for our first $2,500 out-of-pocket costs. Okay, so here's the question. I think this is what's really different about solidarity in comparison to traditional health insurance. You can actually sign up any time. Is that correct? So if someone's between jobs, maybe they're sitting here going, wow, we're expecting a child or we're concerned and we don't want to change jobs yet because, you know, we want to make sure that we have insurance at this time. You can always sign up for health insurance through solidarity or alternative health insurance. Yeah, yeah exactly right. And so that's where we get a lot of, lot of families signing up. They lose a job. And, you know, with the Affordable Care Act, you can only enroll in a, an insurance, you know, November, December timeframe, where we get a lot of families in mid-year that lose a job. Maybe they want to quit the job. Maybe they want to do an early retirement. And they look at solidarity as a way to fund their medical expenses. Excellent. What an awesome resource. And I love it because it's so centered on our Catholic faith, on being morally responsible, ethically responsible, fiscally responsible with how we are spending what we have been given that truly is a gift. So if you want to learn more about Solidarity Health Share and the incredible work that Brad is doing, please go check out SolidarityHealthShare.org. Again, that's SolidarityHealthShare.org. This has been Trending with Timory. To book her to speak or learn more about her guests, visit radiotrending.com. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes.